Let me ask you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Romans, the book of Romans in chapter 15, the book of Romans in chapter 15. So we spent several weeks and several sermons unpacking Romans 14. But now we've come to a new chapter in the book of Romans. And that means returning to a a new subject, something different that God, through the Apostle Paul, intends to teach us. Right? Well, actually, that's not the case at all. Uh, Remember, your, your chapter divisions... And your verse divisions in your Bible were added over a thousand years after Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome. The chapter divisions were added in the 1200s. Your verse divisions were added in the 1500s. And I'm thankful for them. Uh, They make Bible study a whole lot easier. But sometimes you can't help but scratch your head and wonder what was English Cardinal Stephen Langdon thinking when he put that chapter division there. Uh, There are some places in the Bible where the chapter division just seems strange. You think you're turning to a, a new subject, a different line of thought, and you're not. If you and I were dividing this section up, we probably would not have ended Romans 14 where Stephen Langton ended Romans 14. Uh, I probably would have ended Romans 14 at what is today, chapter 15, verse 7. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 7. So we're going to look at the first seven verses of chapter 15. 15, and I want to read those together. So Romans 15, beginning verse 1. This is the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. Hopefully you heard some familiar themes in those verses. Paul is continuing to sing the same tune. He's continuing to hammer the same point. He's pressing on us the same principle that we saw in chapter 14. He is continuing to teach that we should be willing to deny ourselves in order to build up in love our brothers and our sisters in Christ. 
Uh, Note the repetition. Uh, Romans 14 verse 1. Romans 14 verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Romans 15 verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Chapter 14, verse 19. Then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Chapter 15, verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Uh, Romans 14, 20, 21. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed, un- is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. So it's the same ideas, sometimes the same words being repeated again and again in this extended passage from Romans 14, verse 1, all the way to Romans 15, verse 7. Now, what does that tell us? What does it tell us that Paul spends so much time In this, his most important letter, the most important epistle of the New Testament, he gives so much time to this one principle. I think it tells us at least a couple of things. First, I think it teaches us just how important peace and brotherly love is in Christ's churches. The Bible does not spend time emphasizing minor truths and minor principles. If Paul, in his magnum opus, in this ultimate statement of Christianity, this letter to the Romans, if he spends so much time here, it must be because this really, really matters. God's glory is at stake in whether or not His people live with love towards each other. The honor of Jesus Christ is at stake in whether or not we put each other above ourselves. When God's people are at each other's throats, full of conflict and strife, Why would anyone want to hear our gospel? But when they see God's people sacrificing in order to love for one another and care for one another, when they see God's people willing to deny themselves for each other's sakes, it is a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel. So for the sake of our witness in the community, for the sake of our witness to unbelievers who might come among us, for the sake of our witness to our children who are being brought up in this church, this principle really matters. Romans 14, Romans 15, 1 through 7, be willing to put aside any non-essential practices in order to better love and build up your brother and sister. And then second, I think we learn from this 
that Paul spends so much time on this theme because he is not only concerned with doctrine and right beliefs, but he is equally concerned with right practice. In other words, Paul is not someone who only cares whether or not you can check the right theological boxes. Trinity, check. Salvation by grace, check. Paul understands that right believing should lead to right living. And it is in the right living that we grow up and that we experience maximum joy in Christ and that God is glorified. Yes, orthodoxy, right beliefs, that matters a great deal. So does orthopraxis, right living. And these two are never to be separated from one another. If you have right beliefs, but you're failing to live the way God has taught you to live, your beliefs do not mean anything. And if you're living in all these right ways, but you're not holding on to the truths of God... You're living as a hypocrite. And so both of these most must go together. If your theology is not making a difference in the way you actually live, it's worthless. The Puritan William Perkins defined theology as the science of living blessedly forever. Theology, he said, is the science of living blessedly forever. In other words, theology is always ultimately about how we are to live, including what we're to believe, but also how we are to think, speak, and act because of what we believe. J.I. Packer says that theology's aim is to achieve God's glory and man's good through man's life activity. In other words, theology is about glorifying God and delighting in Him in every aspect of your life, your private life, your family life, your work life, even whatever you eat or whatever you drink, even the way you act around your fellow church members. So Paul has spent lots of time in this letter teaching us good theology, and we must hold fast to those glorious truths found in the book of Romans. But whether or not we are really holding to those truths will show itself and whether or not we are willing to humble ourselves to love our brother and sister. You want to know whether or not you really get the glorious teaching of the book of Romans? It should change you so that you're willing to deny yourself even your own rights in order to serve the people around you in this church. I think this might be a good moment to issue a word of warning. Beware judging the state of your soul and your position before God based on your theological knowledge. Uh, Just this week, a man uh, gave this testimony in a little group I'm a part of on social media. He, he, He posted a picture of his bookshelf And it was filled with really good books. I mean, these are the kind of books written by great uh, men of faith throughout history. Uh, Just just really some of the best theological books ever written. And then here's what he said. He said, for years, everything I read came off of this shelf and several others like it. 
He said, there's a lot of amazing theology on this bookcase. And for years, all it did was feed self. I could discuss the intricacies and the nuances of the deep things of God. But my life was a train wreck and filled with sin. I neglected prayer, reading the scripture as worship, and didn't have time for books on holiness or humility and growing in Christ-likeness, except to quote them. He said, I was lost. I spent 23 years as a reformed false convert, preaching and teaching while living a double life of immorality, adultery, pride, and self-righteousness. He said, as much as I love these books and these authors, I was all along a stranger to the author of life. He said, I have learned that all of the theological knowledge in the world cannot save you. The size of one's library or the breadth of knowledge of spiritual things is not an indicator of spiritual maturity. I learned these things the hard way. It nearly destroyed my marriage, my family. I hurt everyone I knew. He said, guard your heart because even our own longing after God can, if we're not watchful, digress into a sinful, prideful self-focus that misses Christ. Mount Hermon, don't hear me wrong. Theology matters. Truth matters. You are to seek to know and understand and believe the things of God. But knowledge without a changed heart? Knowledge without a submissive heart? Knowledge without a heart that says, I want to follow Jesus and be obedient to Him, even when that's hard for me, even when it hurts? That kind of knowledge will not save We must sit at the feet of Jesus as his disciples, saved by grace, with the intention of not just hearing what Jesus says, but taking it to heart and putting it into practice. This is true Christianity, faith that shows itself in a changed, obedient life. Okay, so we're going to tackle the first three verses with the rest of our time, and we're going to do so by asking three questions, okay? Number one, the easiest to get out of the way, because we've already seen the answer in Romans 14. The question is, who are the strong that Paul has in mind in verse 1? So does everybody see verse 1? Chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Well, who are these strong people? Who is Paul referring to? And the answer, as we saw in Romans 14, is that the strong are those who have learned more of the Christian faith and have come to a greater understanding of Christian truth. The weak Christian trusts Christ. The weak Christian loves Christ, wants to honor Christ. But the weak Christian still has a lot of false ideas and a lot of false convictions that need to be cleared up. The strong Christian has had his or her mind more fully renewed through the Word of God and doesn't get so hung up on some of those false ideas. 
If you want to see this more clearly, take time this afternoon when you get home. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. There Paul makes very clear that the weak are those who lack certain knowledge, while the strong are those who have certain knowledge. In that case, the the weak were those who uh, lacked the fact that everything created by God is good, including meat sacrificed to false gods which are not gods at all. And so the weak thought it was sinful to eat that meat. The strong had the knowledge that actually that meat is still created by God. It is sanctified by prayer and thankfulness and that it was fine for them to eat. So the more you've come to know of your Bible, the more you have a truly Christian worldview, the more you are able to think in terms of Christian principles, you meet the category here of strong. Okay, so what is Paul commanding these strong Christians? We can sum it up in two answers. Paul says, first, bear with the failings of the weak. So yes, it is inconvenient when you already have the meatloaf in the oven and you've invited that Christian family to come over and then you find out they think eating meat is a sin. And that's, that's a failing. They're wrong about that. And Paul says, bear with that failing. Put the meatloaf in the fridge. Save it for later. Go to plan B. Note, by the way, that Paul says we have an obligation This isn't Paul just suggesting this to us. This isn't just Paul saying, be nice to your fellow Christian. He is saying, this is what the God who has saved you and loves you commands of you. This is what your Savior demands of you. If you're strong, that is, if you've come to know certain things, if you've come to understand the Christian worldview, if you've come to understand the truths of the Bible, you're strong because God made you that way. It is grace that has given you that knowledge. Your strength is only owing to the mercy of God. Your ability to see things from a Christian worldview is only because the Holy Spirit has made that happen for you. Now, don't go boast in your strength. Rather, see that it is only grace that has made you strong, and now use your strength to care and love for those who are weaker. If you really are strong and Christian truth is shaping your perspective, you ought to be the leader in being self-denying, putting others before yourself, overflowing in joyful love towards the people around you. He says, if you really are strong, the, the, the strong are those who know things from a Christian perspective, understand biblical truth, and therefore their concern is not for themselves and their own enjoyments. You know what's ahead for you in heaven. You know this life isn't where it's at. And therefore, you're able to delight in serving the people that God puts in your path. If you are strong, then your God, love itself, the knowledge that makes you strong, all oblige you to be patient with those who are weak. So the the first command is that the strong are to bear with the failings of the weak. And then there's that second command that Paul was pressing upon the strong. 
He says, let us please our neighbor and not ourselves. Let us please our neighbor and not ourselves. Now let's be clear. Paul is not talking about living your life for the approval of men. Paul is not saying that you should compromise important and essential truths and principles to please your neighbor. You don't start supporting homosexuality because your neighbor is flying a rainbow flag. In the church, you don't start minimizing truths or calls to holiness because they don't please others in the church. Galatians 1.10, Paul said, Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So two things are clear. Pleasing man is who Paul used to be before he was a Christian. He said, Am I still trying to please man? There was a time in Paul's life when he used to try and please men. That's not who he is any longer, he says. And if you're here and you're saved, this was true for you too. Before you were a Christian, what others thought about you really mattered. I heard an interview on the radio this week. They're interviewing this guy about why do people not reach their dreams? Why do people not accomplish the great things that they want to accomplish? And they were asking him, what are the fears that keep people from reaching what they want to reach in this life. And the person said that above all other fears, the one that paralyzes people most universally is what he called FOPO. F-O-P-O. Fear of other people's opinions. And he said in our studies what we see is that this just applies across income, across races, across gender. People are living their lives with the fear of what people will think about them. Before you were saved, you may or may not have cared about what the general public thought, but there were some people in your life whose opinion held great sway over you. You wanted to please them. You wanted their affection and their acceptance. FOPO was a real power in your life. You, you thought and spoke and acted in ways that you hoped would please certain people in your life so that you could find the joy, peace, security you needed from them accepting you. But now in Christ, you have found ultimate affection and acceptance. For the Christian, we are loved by Jesus Christ himself with a love higher than the mountains, a love deeper than the seas. We no longer need to live to please other people. If we live to please others, we cannot love them well. If we are free from paralyzing FOPO, if we are free from being paralyzed by what other people think, we are better able to love them well. In Christ, we are set free from that. And so Paul says, am I still trying to please men? No, that's who I used to be. Now I live to please Christ. And that means there will be times when serving Christ will go against what other people in your life think. Saying yes to Jesus is going to mean saying no to other people around you. Obeying Jesus is going to mean disappointing people around you. You ever had that happen? You've made a conscious decision to do what you're convinced Jesus would have you to do, and the people around you are not happy about it. But you can only serve one master. 
And so here in Romans 15, Paul was not talking about becoming a people pleaser. Paul was not talking about living for the affirmation and acceptance of others. But what he is talking about is this. Being willing to deny yourself in non-essential matters of practice in order to build up and encourage those around you. For Jesus' sake, as part of your service to Jesus, you are not to needlessly offend or grieve or tempt your brother or sister by doing something that they're convinced is wrong in their presence. It's the same principle as Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the same principle of humility taught in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. So I'm to be mindful of you, and I am to make every effort to love you and to build you up. And Paul says that's what a real strong Christian looks like. Now, before we move on, I want to make an application that we haven't made so far in our study of this theme. We've talked a lot about being willing to deny yourself for the sake of your fellow Christians in this church. But for many in here, the fellow Christian that you are around the most is your spouse. And frankly, for married Christians, the person that you have the most opportunity to grieve or to tempt towards sin is your spouse. You're about to make a big purchase. You are convinced that this purchase is a good thing, but your spouse isn't as convinced. Your spouse says, I- I'm not sure that this is how the Lord would have us spend our money. I, I think we might be acting foolishly, maybe even sinfully. With this big purchase. But you're convinced. No, we need to do this. What do you do? Do you say, just trust me and buy it anyway? Or do you put your spouse in the position where now his or her conscience is raging against them? Because they felt like they were not careful in obeying the Lord in this matter? Birth control. Maybe you are convinced that a certain kind of birth control is appropriate and your spouse believes that that kind of birth control is sinful. Are you going to forbear for the sake of your spouse? That's a real life issue that I've talked to many couples about over the years. Maybe you're convinced that watching a certain kind of movie is fine for you, but your spouse believes it's a sin. Are you going to put your spouse in the situation of watching something they believe is sinful? Or are you going to choose to watch something else? In parenting, you might think something is just fine for the kids. But your spouse's conscience is torn. Your spouse isn't sure that this is appropriate for the kids. Remember the end of Romans 14. If your spouse thinks it might be sin and yet still goes ahead and does it, for your spouse it becomes sin. Don't tempt your spouse to sin. Don't put your spouse in a situation where they're being pulled along by you into something they think may be against the Lord Jesus Christ. 
when I do premarital counseling, we always spend a few minutes talking about sexual intimacy for the married couple. And one very common reality is that sometimes one spouse believes that something in the bedroom is appropriate, and another spouse thinks that something in the bedroom is not appropriate. Are you going to forbear? Are you going to respect and honor the conscience of your spouse? So yes, what we're saying here about denying yourself and putting others above yourselves and seeking to benefit them and not yourself, that applies to the relationships that we have here in the local church. It also applies to your family. And it applies to your marriage. Final question. Ooh. No final question. We'll save verse 3 for next time. There's just no way. We're going to get this done in time. Let's just read verse 3 and make the point. And we'll come back to it later. Chapter 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What is our encouragement to put others above ourselves? What is our encouragement to deny ourselves for their benefit? It is the example of Christ himself and what he has done for us. It is the fact that we are the recipients of one who denied himself to the point where he went to the death of a cross. That we would be blessed. That's your model. That's your example as you interact with others. As he denied himself and even undertook all of that suffering for your sake. Are you willing to put the meatloaf in the fridge and scramble and find something else? Out of love for your brother or sister. Let us work for mutual upbuilding for the glory of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.